Today's reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapters 32 through 34. Um, you, we'll start in chapter 32, the first 19 verses. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. And for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed to him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should, you anger, should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, with great power and the mighty hand? Why should Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, Relent and do not bring disaster on our people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and I will be their inheritance forever. The, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, where, uh, There is a sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing what I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And we continue in uh, chapter 33 from verse 12. Moses said unto the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, 
Teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked me, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and uh, their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sylvie. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, these are chapters that show us ourselves and what we are like, but wonderfully, they show us you and what you are like. You are a compassionate and gracious God who sees our need and is drawn towards us in compassion and graciously gives us what we don't deserve. And pray, Father, you'd look on us now in that way. And please speak to us, help us to know you better. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Imagine someone committing adultery on their honeymoon. For a husband to walk into his hotel room, find the bride that just days earlier he'd been facing, exchanging solemn vows, and there she is in bed with another guest. 
That, in a sense, is that the scandal, the shock of this story. Last week, we were in chapter 24. There was a, the covenant ceremony, if you like, a marriage ceremony. Vows were exchanged. Amazing vows that God made to his people. Out of all nations, he said, you will be my treasured possession. Though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And the people had made vows too, three times actually. They say, we will do everything the Lord has said. There's a, a wedding banquet of sorts, a rather extraordinary, amazing wedding banquet for some select guests. We read last time, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. They saw God and they ate and drank. And after that amazing scene, we read the end of the chapter, Moses went up to the top of the mountain alone. The glory of the Lord settled on it like a consuming fire. And he entered the cloud of God's presence. And that's where he is for the next seven chapters, receiving plans for how God is going to dwell with his people. So he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. But, but still, it rather beggars belief. The beginning of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron was Moses' big brother. And as God had been revealing plans for this tabernacle in the previous chapters, more is said about Aaron than anyone else, actually. God has big plans for Aaron. So far, he's, uh, he's stood up to Pharaoh. He's, he's been, lots of ways, rather impressive here. He is utterly, utterly pathetic. Caves in to the pressure of this people. He should have said, God said, no idols. Well, why should you want one anyway? Look, you see that consuming fire, the cloud, assuring us of God's presence. He hasn't gone anywhere. What did you have for breakfast? But what he miraculously provided for you, the manna. But no, he caves in. Okay, he says, and he takes their gold. He, he fashions this idol and says, tomorrow we'll have a festival to the Lord. And they sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Exactly what has last been said in that sort of marriage ceremony in chapter 24. But this is a very different scene. Soon they are... Uh, says, indulging in revelry. And I think the idea we're meant to have in mind is of drunken orgy. And it, and it baffles us, doesn't it? That they could do that, could be that stupid. But if we know ourselves, we should know that that is what we are like too. 
Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians that this story embodies here as a warning to us, a warning that we need too. We can be stupid. They had met with the God of Sinai and they exchanged that for a metal cow. One of the Psalms puts it like this, they exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. Stupid, stupid choice. You think of that newly married husband finding his wife in bed with another man. You wouldn't be surprised if he found the marriage certificate somewhere in his luggage and tore it up in her face. And that's essentially what Moses does. Verse 19 we read, when, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. That's not a kind of uncontrolled fit of temper. It's a deliberate act. He's saying this covenant, which those stone tablets represented, this covenant is in pieces, utterly, utterly broken. And yet, chapter 34, we read how God says, well, make me some new stone tablets, please. I'll write on them again. And it seems the covenant is back on. And we might say, how? How can that be? And crucially, we'll learn, it's, it's because of the kind of God the Lord is passage shows us what we're like, but much more. It shows us what our God is like. But there's something else that's very important in these chapters, and that is the role of Moses. He has a very significant part to play as the mediator. This fractured relationship is brought together again because of Moses, as the psalm puts it, standing in the breach and bringing the two sides together. There is masses we could look at in these three chapters. But I actually just want to focus on Moses' role as mediator. His intercession, his prayers to God for this people. We'll see he prays for God's mercy, God's presence, and God's glory. We'll look at that and we'll then think how... He points forward to a much better mediator, the one mediator between God and mankind, the Lord Jesus himself. Okay, so first, first Moses prays for God's mercy. So chapter 32, verses 9 and 10, God says this, I've seen these people, they are a stiff-necked people, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you, Moses, into a great nation. God is rightly angry with this people. But you might think, why, why does he say, leave me alone? I mean, it's the sort of thing you might imagine a stroppy teenager saying, who wants to be sort of left alone to sulk and enjoy their, their, their misery. Imagine a teenager saying that. Why does God say that? Why does he need Moses, as it were, to, to leave him? 
And I think, I'm sure we're to understand that it's, it's really an invitation to Moses to stay. He's goading Moses to step into the role of mediator. In verse 7, God says to Moses, your people. And it might be that in part, God is sort of saying, I disown them. I don't think it's quite that, though. I think more, he's saying to Moses, your people, you've got to step up here. You have a responsibility, you must assume. God says, if, I, if you go, I'll destroy them. He's saying to Moses, so you better stay. And wonderfully, Moses does. Verse 11, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Your people, notice, they're your people, Lord. You bought them. You redeemed them. You might say, why should he say, why should your anger burn? It's obvious, isn't it, why God's anger is burning? I don't think Moses is saying, look, Lord, they're not really that bad. They don't quite deserve it. It wasn't that serious what they did. I think Moses' point is it's not so much what the people are like. He's saying, Lord, given what you are like, why should your anger burn? And he appeals to God's name, God's reputation. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Moses saying, look, for, Lord, for your name's sake, don't destroy them. It's not because of what they're like, but because of what you're like, your reputation. He appeals to God's name, and he appeals to God's word. Verse 13, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. You, you made a promise to those patriarchs, for the sake of your word, Lord, don't destroy them. One of the Psalms says this to God, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Nothing matters more to God than his name and his word. So Moses is praying, look, Lord, for your sake, have mercy. And wonderfully, verse 14, you read, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And I take it, that was God's intention, to spare them. It's not that he says, oh, yes, actually, Moses, you're right. I lost my temper. I shouldn't have threatened that. God worked out his purpose, his intention, in answer to Moses' prayer. He goads Moses to pray. Because the Bible shows us again and again and again, yes, God is completely sovereign in his world, but amazingly, wonderfully, he chooses to work out his sovereign purposes in answer to the prayers of his people. I think that's what God is doing here, goading Moses to pray and relenting. So disaster is averted. But actually, it's clear that God's anger is still a reality. And we see something of God's anger in Moses' own response to what he sees going on. 
And then look on to verse 30, bottom of the page. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. He's saying, look, if, if their sin must be punished for your anger to be averted, for atonement to be made, that Moses prays, well, well, punish me instead. Let me bear their guilt. Blot me out of your book of life. And actually, God says, no, Moses, you can't do that. He has secured God's mercy. But actually, God says, end of verse 34, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. We're being shown in this chapter, yet Moses' role as a mediator is absolutely vital if they are to know God's mercy. But actually, they need, we need someone better than Moses. He isn't the perfect mediator. And he's pointing us forward, actually, the Bible will show, to one who is to come, the perfect mediator, the Lord Jesus, as we'll see. That's the first thing Moses prays for. God's mercy. Secondly, he prays for God's presence. So look, we didn't read this bit, but chapter 33, first three verses, then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. God's saying, I'll, I'll give you the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Have all those blessings, but you can't have me. It's like a husband or wife who's been cheated on, saying you can have the house, you can keep the car, you can have all our stuff, but I can't stay with you a day longer. I'm out of here. I wonder if God were to say to us, you can have heaven. You can have all those blessings, but you can't have me. I wonder whether we'd almost be tempted to take that think that was enough. Well, if we would, that's a sure sign there is something profoundly wrong with our relationship with God. If the partner were to say, I don't mind you going, I'm just so glad I can have the sofa. I love that sofa. You'd think that marriage is seriously, seriously wrong. Well, to their credit, the Israelites, verse 4, Chapter 33, when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn 
No one put on any ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. People are devastated that God might not be with them. And when Moses prays, if you look on verse 13, Moses says, if you're pleased with me, Teach me your ways that I might know you and continue to find favor with you. I think he's, that word ways, it might just be way. I think his sense really is, teach me your plans, your intentions. God had said, I will decide what to do with you. I think Moses is saying, tell me your decision. Tell me your decision. What are your plans now? And in particular, Moses wants to know, Are you going with us or not? And verse 14, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And that sounds encouraging, but what we can't so much see is that that it's you singular in the original. God says, I'll go with you, Moses. But I'm not saying anything about them. And Moses responds by standing in complete solidarity with the people. He, as it were, ties himself to them in, uh, in how he prays. Verse 15, then Moses said to them, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people? on the face of the earth. Moses says, if you're not committed to coming with us, not just with me, we're not leaving this place. And God replies, verse 17, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. It's striking. That's one of the key themes in these verses. The Lord's favor with Moses. That actually is what is sort of exemplified in the little bit, verses 7 to 11, about the tent of meeting. Look, the end of or verse 11, first bit of it, the Lord would speak to Moses there face to face as one speaks to a friend. The Lord's favor to Moses being shown here, and Moses prays, verse 13, if you're pleased with me. And again, Verse 16, it's about whether you're pleased with me. He's saying, for my sake, Lord, go with us. Previously, he'd said, Lord, show mercy for your sake, for your name's sake. Now he's saying, be with us for my sake, because of your favor with me. And that's how God answers. Verse 17, I'll do the very thing you've asked, because I am pleased with you. And I know you by name. You're able to see that Moses' role as the mediator for the people is crucial. And we'd have noticed too that forgiveness wasn't enough. They needed mercy in chapter 32. But Moses isn't content with that. He prays for more. He prays also for God's 
presence. Wonderful to be rescued from Egypt. Wonderfully that they might enjoy the gift of the promised land. But Moses says, that is not all we need. That is not all we want. We want you. Praise be God's presence. Then finally, it's not just God's presence in a vague sense. He prays, verse 18, now show me your glory. That's the third thing he prays for, God's glory. We might wonder, what, why does Moses ask that? Is it simply a desire to know God better, to have some deeper, fuller experience of God? And I suppose we can relate to that. We've all maybe felt like that. Well, it is that, but it's, it's more significant than just that. He could have stopped when given the assurance of God's presence going with them. But I think it's right. I think it's important that Moses pressed further and asked for more. Asked for God's glory. And I say that because that is sort of the trajectory of the book. That is how the book is going to end. The tabernacle will be built, symbol of God's presence with his people. And then finally, the glory of the Lord comes down and fills it. That is the, the goal. The reason they've been saved, that's the reason God has bound himself to them in a covenant, made them his people. That's the reason God is present with them so that they might know his glory. That ultimately is what God intends. And I think Moses is right in, in, in sort of pressing for more. And yet God says, not yet. You can't yet see all that I am, but you can know me. Verse 19, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And if you've been here over the term, you'll know God's name, the Lord, is what he is revealing throughout this book. He is trying to show what it means for him. To be the Lord. And this is the climactic moment of revelation. God says, I'll tell you who I am. Verse 21, then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put, my, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you'll see my back. But my face must not be seen. Language is sort of straining to express the inexpressible. That talk of God's hand and back and face. Well, they're obviously metaphors, and we, it's hard to sort of look behind the metaphor and, and, and see what is there. What are they quite metaphors of? But the sense is that Moses can't be given a full, direct revelation of God's glory. There is more to see. Something is being held back. But this is a massively significant moment. Then verse 5, we're told, the Lord came down in a cloud. Verse 6, he passed in front of Moses. And we want to know, what did he see? What was that back of God like? And we're not told that. Clearly, the more important thing for us to hear, for Moses to hear, actually at this point, is what God said. 
verse 6, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents, the third and fourth generation. In the Old Testament, this is the definitive explanation of what God is like. It's quoted again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. If this is not how we think of God, the God we think of is not God. Might as well be a golden calf, actually. An idea of God we've fashioned for ourselves. How we might imagine him to be, but not God as he is. This is who I am, says God. This is what I'm like. The compassionate one. It's the first thing he says. It's striking. We might have imagined it would be the burning with anger one or the holy, majestic, awesome one. But the first thing God wants us to grasp is that he is the God of compassion. Isn't that wonderful? Love that is drawn towards us in our weakness and mess and need and misery. That's who our God is, the, the compassionate and gracious God. Love that is utterly undeserved, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The Psalms says your love reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children, their children, for the sin of the parents, the third and fourth generation. And we think, oh dear, that rather spoils it, that last bit, doesn't it? It was all sounding so nice. Can't we leave the, the end of verse 7 out? And the answer is no. Without that, the rest is meaningless. A God who does not judge the guilty is a God who doesn't care. He's not compassionate. He's not abounding in love. A God who does not judge the guilty is, is not a forgiving God because there's nothing to forgive. Sin is inconsequential. What is there for God, for God to forgive us? We need the last bit of verse 7. And yet at the same time, there is a tension, isn't there? Actually, a tension that we see and feel in these three chapters. How can God be the God of grace and mercy and the God of justice? And it's a tension that's only finally resolved at the cross. At the cross, we see all God's compassion and grace displayed. And at the cross, we see all God's justice perfectly expressed. The cross is where we see the glory of God displayed before us. But this story sort of 
amazing and marvelous though it is, leaves us in lots of ways throughout wanting more, looking for something more. Actually, that's true of this book as a whole. Exodus is always pointing forward to something better, to another redemption, to uh, another covenant. And so, so too here, what we see of Moses points forward to a better mediator that we need, who is Jesus, the one greater than Moses. We see in this story that as God's people, we need one like Moses. We need a mediator. Jesus is the one who perfectly, perfectly meets that need. He is the one who secures for us God's mercy. And whereas when Moses prayed, block me out, let me bear the punishment that they deserve, God said, actually, not you, Moses, you can't do that. Yet the Bible says God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. And Isaiah says it was the Lord's will to crush him, to make his life an offering for sin. Jesus is the one who, who made atonement so that God's burning anger might forever be turned aside from us. He's the perfect mediator who secures God's mercy. He also secures God's presence for us. Like, like Moses, Jesus stands resolutely with us, as it were. Moses um, says, I, I'm happy not to enjoy your presence, Lord, if it means, if, if, if my people can't enjoy your presence too. He'll forego it for their sake. And Jesus, of course, was willing to be God forsaken so that we might know God's presence forever. Jesus prayed, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, spirit of truth. He said, we, Father and Jesus, will come and make our home with you. God's presence will never leave you, never forsake you, is the promise. For Jesus' sake, we can know that's true. For Jesus' sake. We need God's mercy. God wants us and means us to, to know his presence, but he also longs that we should know him in his fullness. Moses couldn't see the fullness of God's glory, but the Bible says that glory is now revealed to us in the face of Christ. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. We're going to read these coming weeks in John 1. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. John says we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. For God's purpose is that we should see and enjoy and ultimately share in God's glory for all eternity. And Jesus, the mediator, is the one who's made that possible. Let me pray.
Father God, we thank you for for Jesus. We long that more and more we would overflow with thanks for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he pleads for mercy for us and has perfectly secured it. Thank you that he identifies with us and wonderfully you give us all that you would give him. We can know your presence now and one day we will see your glory, what even Moses couldn't then see. We praise you for that. We praise you for your grace and abounding love in his name. Amen.